Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we've been in a series going through chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. Today is the 12th and final chapter of the book. So it's just in time for Sukkot. And I'd like to start uh, chapter 12 by first asking you all a question. I'd like you to think for a moment, what was the most exciting five minutes of your life? Look back on all your years, consider what was the most uh, breathtaking, exhilarating, emotion-packed 300 seconds you ever experienced. I think I could make a good case that the most exciting five minutes of your life were the first five. Think about it. <laughs> After nine months of darkness and isolation, you discover there's a whole world out there <laughs> full of colors and tastes and sounds and sensations and people. You discover you've entered a realm beyond your wildest imaginations. If you could have talked back then, you would have said, Mom, Dad, I had no idea. <laughs> I actually had some reservations about leaving the womb. But now I see this is a much better arrangement. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed this for anything. I think the most exciting five minutes of your life were the first five minutes after you were born. But that's nothing compared to what's to come. I think the most amazing five minutes you'll ever experience were the first five minutes after you die. Think about it. For thousands of years, the brightest minds have tried to figure out what lies beyond the veil. Uh, what lies on the other side of death? Well, after those first five minutes, you will know. <laughs> You'll experience whatever it is that lies beyond this world. You'll have the first foretaste of your destiny for all eternity. And these five minutes are coming. It's inevitable. These five, these five minutes will happen to every one of us here. Just as, this, uh, I'm as sure as the next five minutes are going to happen to you who are sitting right here, uh, these five minutes also will happen to you. That's the reality. Think about the sights you're going to see, the, the sounds you'll hear, the experiences you'll have in your first five minutes of eternity. Well, that's exactly how Daniel chapter 12 opens. Daniel's told this, like, look at Daniel 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Michael the great prince, will, will protect your uh, who protects your people, will arise. There'll be a time of distress, such as has never happened since the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of death will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, uh, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, now Daniel's saying here that, that every person who walks the face of the earth, he's saying these five minutes are coming, uh, and, and they'll indicate an eternal destiny. Uh, either of indescribable joy 
uh, or unspeakable loss. Daniel talks about the coming hour of judgment, the, the judgment of God, uh, when God's verdict will be, will be pronounced with all finality. So I want to close our series on Daniel by looking at what Daniel says here in chapter 12 about the state of blessedness uh, that some will experience and the state of condemnation that others will face. Look at Daniel 12, 2 again. It says, everyone will be resurrected. Multitudes will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting disgrace. Yeshua, by the way, says the same thing in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He concludes the parable with this, Matthew 25, 46, that the evil will go away to eternal punishment, uh, but the righteous to eternal life. Uh, now on the overhead, please. Uh, what is this state of condemnation that both Daniel and Yeshua speak about? It can be summarized in one phrase. God is not there. Revelation 14, verse 10 says, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. Now, normally back in John's day and in Daniel's day, uh, when, when wine was poured, it was always mixed with water. Uh, unmixed wine was quite rare and was extremely strong. Uh, that's the image John is using here uh, in Revelation 14. It's very sobering, no pun intended. <laughs> Uh, they'll drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed, not diluted, into the cup of his anger. John then continues to describe the state of condemnation. Look at Revelation 14, verse 10. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. So what is hell? Uh, in Hebrew, Gehenna, you know, really like. Yeshua paints a picture for us in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. He says, the kingdom of heaven, the Malkut HaShabayim, it's like a net, like a fishing net, uh, that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore, then they sat down and collected uh, the good fish in, in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw the wicked into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeshua says all people will be brought into judgment one day. Every fish in the lake will, will be gathered up. Uh, every person will stand before the holy God. Second, there'll be a, a separation process. Uh, the fish are sorted out. You know, all people, including you uh, and me, uh, will be sorted out. The redeemed will be with Yeshua forever uh, in heaven. Uh, the unredeemed, the non-believers, the self-centered, the, the self-deceived, will be assigned to Gehenna for all eternity. Where, which Yeshua describes here as, a, as two things. One is a blazing furnace, and second, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where they'll be judged uh, for their sins, and for their greatest sin of all, which is the rejection of God's gracious offer of salvation and forgiveness in Messiah Yeshua. Let me ask you, do you believe in hell? Uh, do you believe in it as well as much as you do in heaven? <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can't read Daniel 12 without being confronted with the reality of God's judgment. And Yeshua actually taught more about hell than he did about heaven. 
because God's justice demands judgment for our sins and our offenses against a holy God. So either we must pay for our cosmic rebellion or cling to Yeshua to pay it for us through his atoning death and resurrection on our behalf. So what will hell really be like for those who reject Yeshua's atonement? You know, I saw a guy once uh, laughingly say uh, goodbye to his friends and say, see y'all in hell. <laughs> and they all yucked it up and they laughed. He's not worried about hell. Uh, he thinks it's a great place, you know, a place with no rules, uh, no religion, uh, uh, no, uh, no, no, no religious people, you know, no restraints. It's a place where all my friends will be, he thinks. <laughs> they say, we can party all day and all night till you get wasted. You know, it's, it's pictured like a, 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 an eternal animal house. <laughs> but those notions are the product of wishful thinking. The scriptures paint a very different and very frightening picture. And it speaks of four different types of suffering in, in Gehenna, uh, in hell. So on the overhead. Uh, first, it speaks of people suffering emotional anguish. The Hebrew word for hell is Gehenna, which literally refers to a deep valley outside of Jerusalem where all the garbage was thrown and, and burned. It was a huge garbage dump that burned 24-7, year after year. Now, when you go to a garbage dump, you don't feel bad, do you, about throwing away uh, stuff into the dump? Because the stuff, you, the junk you throw in there is, is useless. It's irredeemable. It's irreparable. It's, it's disposable junk. The scriptures say the unbelievers will be assigned to a place called Gehenna, illustrating that they'll be consciously aware that they have been deemed worthless and irredeemable and fit for no good purpose. They'll wake up in hell and realize they've been considered trash for all eternity. Many people, you know, have a, have a bad self-image, low self-esteem. And you want to say to them, just look how much God values you. Uh, and you'll see how valuable and precious you are to him. But the scriptures say that people in hell suffer the emotional anguish of realizing for now and for all eternity, God has deemed them disposable, irredeemable, worthless. They'll be trashed. Can you imagine the emotional anguish of that? In Matthew 13, Yeshua says, in hell there'll be gnashing of teeth, total frustration and emotional anguish. The Bible teaches that when people wake up in hell, part of this emotional anguish will be this never-ending gnashing of teeth when they, when they realize, I blew it, uh, uh, I knew better. Yeshua, he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. I had the opportunity, but I rejected him. I was self-centered, I was self-willed. Uh, the self-reproach is almost unbearable. But there's no chance to do better next time. There is no next time. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 9.27, man is destined once to die. And after that comes the judgment. On the overhead, that's the emotional anguish people suffer in hell. Second, there's also physical anguish, of course, uh, where the Bible says the worm never dies. Luke 16 describes hell in terms of fire, Flames, relentless, suffocating, tormenting heat. Uh, or the rich man in, in Luke 16, he begs Lazarus for even a single drop of water. He doesn't ask for a barrel of water or even, even a cup of water. He says a single drop would be precious beyond description. Think back to 9-11 uh, and the Twin Towers burning. 
TV footage showed people jumping a hundred stories to their death. Why? Because that was more bearable than to die by fire. But for those in hell, there is no escape, no relief. The pain does not eventually stop. It intensifies forever. It's on the overhead. Number one, emotional anguish. Number two, physical anguish. Number th third, there's relational anguish. I don't know who conjured up this myth that there'd be all this great fellowship in hell. <laughs> you know, poker games, flat, uh, frat parties, uh, orgies, hanging out with all my buddies at the bowling alley at Miller time. <laughs> but that's just a flat-out lie. There is no fellowship in hell. No community, uh, no companionship. There are no relationships in hell. Only solitary suffering. Will you keep moving further and further and further apart from one another? There is utter loss of community. Why? Because all things that make community possible, humility, servanthood, courtesy, love, honesty, bearing one another's burdens, these are all gifts from God. And to reject God is to reject everything that comes from him and that makes community possible. Just as heaven involves, you know, images of pearly gates and, and streets of gold to reflect perfect community, uh, oneness, intimacy, belonging. So the image of hell is it's a mirror opposite. It's an image of a destroyed city. Uh, it's the end of all community. The image of, of being so locked up in your own pride uh, and self-centeredness, you become utterly incapable of, of relationship. We see small glimpses of this today where people get so consumed with themselves and then their pride or their greed that they slowly become more and more isolated. Like, think of Howard Hughes, for example. Well, now, carry that trajectory out to its ultimate conclusion. Imagine being so locked up in self-consumption that you can never know the joy of friendship, never know the goodness of serving and being served, never know the embrace of a loving heart. Utter aloneness. Outer darkness, no love, no compassion, uh, no pity, no community. Don't plan any parties because no one shows up <laughs> on the overhead. Emotional anguish, physical anguish, relational anguish. Then finally, number four, probably the worst of all, spiritual anguish. Uh, this is the worst of all. This is uh, the most uh, ungodly, hard-hearted, insensitive sinner today still benefits from living in an age where God's grace still shines on the just and the unjust. Uh, where criminals can, can look out of their prison bars and, and still see blue skies and, and green grass. In this age, God is still restraining evil, still working miracles in people's lives. Uh, he's monitoring the flow of history, uh, holding back the flood tides of evil and terror that Satan wants to inflict on this world. But in hell, God does not intervene anymore. He chooses to be conspicuous by his absence. And his absence unleashes a reign of spiritual terror that words cannot describe. So the scriptures have to resort to these word pictures, like, like outer darkness. Uh, this is one picture. Uh, it refers to uh, absolute chaos and confusion, hopelessness, infinite ages of futility. Uh, and morning never comes, and light never shines. Uh, there's never a breakthrough or understanding. 
there's just eternal, infinite ages of hopelessness, futility, confusion, chaos, in a state totally separated from God. Another scripture calls it a bottomless pit. Uh, this conjures up nightmares of, of falling and falling and falling and falling with no end in sight. Uh, we, we, you wake up from these nightmares like in a cold sweat uh, with your heart pounding. Picture in your mind you're hanging onto a precipice over the mouth of hell. And Yeshua is hanging on to you. And you're hanging on to him. And you decide you don't need him anymore. And you let go. But the moment you let go, you know you've made a terrible mistake. You're falling. And every moment you fall further and further away from the only source of help and truth and love. And you realize you've made the wrong choice to reject Yeshua, but you can't get back up. And now it's too late. And you'll fall further and faster and further and faster into spiritual oblivion. And you know you're going in the wrong direction. And you'd give, you'd give anything to go back. But you can't. And you fall and fall and fall and fall. How long? Forever. And the whole time you're following, you realize, I'm further now. I'm further now from the only source of hope and truth uh, and love. Dante says there's a sign uh, above the, the entryway to hell, which reads, abandon all hope, you who enter here. There's no hope for renewal, no relief, no rest from a guilty conscience, no rest from isolation, no rest from a purposeless existence. You experience it and you know it will never end. No, no, no rest, no relief from self-centeredness, boredom, self-loathing, regret, resentment, sadness, misery, condemnation for your sin. No rest day or night. In hell, there's no bliss of annihilation. Rather, only this conscious continuation of emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual anguish forever, eternally. So I want to ask you now to imagine what would it be like to wake up in those first five minutes and to know that you are in hell, to know you'll spend eternity apart from the Lord with nothing but the fullness of that cup of wrath, utter aloneness, the smoke of your torment going up forever, no rest, day or night. But wrath is not God's design for you. In fact, the scriptures say, the most famous scripture of all, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, the whole world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Yeshua himself says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the, res the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, says that God is not, willing, is not wishing, is not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the Father's heart. For you to repent of going your own way, uh, and to fall down and embrace Yeshua, and to worship and to live for him. But you must choose. You have a choice. On the overhead, see, the truth is this. The only way to, to get to hell, into hell, so you have to go all the way around the cross. 
which is the true tree of life, the Chaim. You have to spurn the love of the Father. You have to reject the sacrifice of Messiah. You have to refuse the tuggings of the Holy Spirit uh, to confess your sins and to repent and to receive forgiveness and bow down uh, and worship the Lord. You have to refuse these tugs over and over again. That's the only way to get to hell. You have to go all the way around the cross. God has placed Yeshua at the center of human history. And to reject the Son is to reject the Father. Indeed, we read this in Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Scriptures talk about two different books. Uh, one might be called the book of merit. Look at Revelation 20, verse 12. All the dead were judged according to their works, their deeds, as recorded in the books. All were judged according to what they had done. So imagine for a moment there's a book about you with your name on it. It's 100% accurate and utterly comprehensive. It contains everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, every thought you've ever thought. How many of you, of you would like that book sold on Amazon <laughs> or read in public or put on the PowerPoint overhead? Well, the scriptures say there is such a book, but there's also another book, which in Revelation 13 calls the book of life. Revelation 13, 8, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. And it's a real simple book. It's a kind of ledger. Uh, on the credit side is listed the work of Yeshua, who died on the cross to pay the debts for your sins and mine, and rose again the third day. That all who embrace him might dwell with him forever. And that all through this whole, the rest of this book are just names, list of names. Names from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And if you've repented and truly submitted your life to Yeshua, your name is listed in that book. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 1. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. And in Romans 8, 35, it says, There's now nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Daniel 12, verse 2, tells us uh, that someday... We will arise to everlasting life and will shine brightly like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars forever and ever. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there's no longer any sea. Sea is a symbol of chaos. And I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, th from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he'll live with them, and, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne, he says, I'm making everything new. We've talked about what hell is like with this emotional and physical and, and relational and spiritual anguish. In contrast, what will heaven be like? When people think about heaven, often they think in terms of uh, the scenery there, you know, the, the living conditions or what it looks like. But what matters most isn't about this, where we're going to live. It's not the scenery. It's what kind of people you will be 
what kind of community you'll be part of, and who you'll be with. The best part of heaven, and John's most important point in Revelation 21 and 22, isn't the sort of place heaven will be in terms of its environment, but rather the sort of person you will become once you get there. What makes heaven heaven isn't the decorations in the, in the heavenly mansions. <laughs> it's who you'll be with and who you'll become. Look at Revelation 21, verse 9. We read, one of the angels said to me, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, who's the bride? It's the believers, the Yeshua followers, the holy congregation. It's you and me. So the angel's saying, I'm going to show you the people of God's community, God's covenant community, you and me. And then Revelation chapters 21 and 22, they go on to describe this holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, shining with the glory of God. But it's important to understand that when John is describing this city, he's really speaking about the people. He's speaking about you and me. He's not describing the carpeting or the wallpaper of heaven. No, he's using the image of heaven as a symbol to describe the kind of people who will be there, the community that will exist in heaven. So I want us to look at, just as we look at four aspects of hell, I want us to look at four aspects of heaven, uh, the, kind of, the kind of person that you'll become uh, in heaven. Because this is your destiny if you're in Messiah. So on the overhead, number one, you'll be thoroughly joyful. The day is coming when your life will be nothing but unending, inexpressible joy. Hallelujah. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. One of the most, hallelujah, yes. One of the most basic needs we have is the need to be comforted. You know, mothers and fathers, they, they comfort their baby from, from the first day the child is born. Uh, the baby's hungry or sick or wet or thirsty or tired or afraid or in pain. And the parent will, will dry that child's tears and tell the child it's going to be okay. You know, one of the marks of a healthy human being is the capacity to comfort yourself and not to be stuck in misery. Little children need comfort. A friend of mine told me that when the, their first daughter was born, uh, they'd always say to her, uh, honey, 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 or I know, I know, I know, uh, to comfort her. So much so that when the baby would wake up crying, if the parents uh, weren't there immediately, the baby would, would, would lie in her crib and would say to herself, honey, 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 I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, sometimes my friend and his wife, they'd sit in their room in bed and listen on the monitor and laugh and laugh. <laughs> I'm sure someday it will all come out with a therapist. <laughs> uh, but, but everyone needs comforting. <laughs> but we know, uh, we also know some hurts are not easily healed. Some hurts may never be completely healed in this life. For example, that's why Frodo had to leave Middle Earth at the end of Lord of the Rings. Some of you perhaps have hurts like that. But the Word of God makes a staggering claim about the promises of heaven. Romans 8, 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy to be compared to the glory that would be revealed in us. Notice what Paul says here. Not just the glory that we revealed to us, but the glory that we revealed in us. Paul was quite familiar, by the way, with suffering in this present age. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and the night in the open sea. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Paul understood suffering. And yet he writes again in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hallelujah. Paul says the glory to come, it's so overwhelming that when you put it on one side of the scale, now the present world sufferings, war, famine, sickness, pain, death, uh, on the other side of the scale, the sufferings of this present age won't even register. Think about your deepest hurts, your worst loss, your most difficult relationship, the place in your heart that's most breakable, your deepest disappointments. The hope of the scriptures is that if you trust in God right now with your broken heart, he promises to remove all your sufferings. Hallelujah, one day. All the sufferings you have in this lifetime, you can trust the Lord right now with your broken heart that he will do that. But he says, he says, trust me, obey me, even in the midst of your hardship. Because one day I will wipe away every tear. And I'll hold you in my arms, the Lord says, as my precious son and daughter. My amsegula in Hebrew, my, my treasured possession. And I'll say, honey, 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 I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, he will comfort you. He will transform you into his image. He'll give you everlasting joy. Every aching heart will be made whole. Every emotional wound will be healed. Every sadness will be removed. God will set everything right and welcome you into his presence. And you'll experience infinite joy for all eternity. On the overhead, number two, second heaven will be a place of profound uh, productivity. People often wonder, you know, what am I going to do in heaven? <laughs> will I be bored? You know, the, the, the biggest question two friends had, uh, Abe and Irwin, was that will the, they were amazed because they're huge baseball fans. Their question was, will there be baseball in heaven? <laughs> because, you know, without baseball, they couldn't imagine how they could ever be happy. So they made a pact with each other. Whoever went first, they tried to find a way to let the other one know whether there's baseball in heaven. Well, as it turns out, Abe died first. And sure enough, in a time of prayer, he visits Irwin. Irwin says, how about it, Abe? Is there baseball in heaven? Abe says, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news, yes, there's baseball in heaven. The bad news is, you're pitching tonight. <laughs> But that's not all we'll do in heaven. <laughs> Revelation 22, verse 5 says, And they shall reign forever and ever. That's you and me. God will redeem us for that for which we were made. In the Garden of Eden, God said we were created, but Salam Elohim, you know, in his image. To, for what? To have dominion over this created order. To reign with God over his creation. We were made to work uh, and to be fruitful. You know, work was invented in the garden way before the fall. <laughs> we were designed to be co-regents, reigning with the Lord. 
We all have this need to, to grow and, and to learn, to contribute, to produce. And this will be fully expressed and fulfilled in heaven. Your gifts and abilities and callings will be fully actualized. You'll be involved in heaven in ceaseless creative activity with Yeshua. Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, Yeshua says the day is coming when he returns and he'll say to his faithful followers in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with, with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. In the kingdom, you will be given great responsibilities. There'll be intellectual challenges uh, to wrap your mind around. Uh, the adventures that require great greatness of spirit, uh, tasks that need strength of will and character uh, to be done. There'll be a place for, for creative, compelling, uh, articulate communication, for beautiful art uh, and music and literature and dance. You'll know the fullness of function and the unending creativity involved in this cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of a created order that continually approaches but, but, but never reaches that the limitless goodness and greatness of God. Heaven is not a boring retirement village. You'll be thoroughly joyful. Secondly, you'll be, you'll be amazingly productive. On the overhead, number three, you'll be morally flawless. How many of you have at least one bad habit? One sin pattern? How many of you don't, but the person sitting next to you sure does? <laughs> John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For all that do evil hate the light. And don't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. We prefer darkness because of our sin. We want to hide those parts of our life we're not proud of, uh, which we don't want anyone else to know about. Sometimes our spiritual growth, you know, it's slow and it's frust frustrating. It's two steps forward and one step back. And if we're honest, we're increasingly aware of how far short we fall, or how much we still need to change. But if you are a true Yeshua follower who's truly surrendered his or her life to him and are filled with his spirit, the day is coming when there'll be no more darkness. Revelation 21, 23. And the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. There'll be no, more, there'll be no darkness in the new Jerusalem. Uh, neither physical nor moral darkness. No deeds of darkness. Uh, no need to hide. Your character will be perfected. I'm making everything new, the Lord says. And that includes you. Uh, you'll have a new heart that will perfectly love Yeshua. You'll have a renewed mind. You'll think only thoughts that are pure and holy and godly and noble and beautiful and good. You'll have a new mouth that'll speak only words of beauty and kindness and sincerity and gentleness and compassion and grace and truth. There'll be no night in the new Jerusalem, no darkness, nothing to hide. You'll be fully known and fully loved. Revelation 21 speaks of this measuring rod uh, to measure the dimensions of the city uh, and the gates and its walls. The image here is of God measuring his community. The idea is that the Lord knows every square inch of his community, of his people. He knows you and me, warts and all. He knows everything about you. And in the New Jerusalem, you are not only fully known, 
but God delights in you. You will be his treasure, his amsegula, his treasured people, his bride, his beloved. Revelation 21 speaks of, of literal treasures, you know, about the foundation stones of the city wall. They made, made, made up of, of precious jewels, uh, 12 different gemstones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of the names of these gemstones, if you look them up, they come from the Torah, from Exodus 28, uh, where the high priest would wear the, the, uh, the Choshen Mishpat, the, the breastplate, containing uh, 12 precious stones with the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on them. In Revelation, I'm sorry, in Exodus 28, 29, we read this. Uh, so Aaron will, bear, Aaron will bear the people on his heart when he enters the presence of the Lord. That was the idea of these 12 stones on the breastplate. The high priest, the Kohen Hagadol, he would bear the people on his heart. But now, in Revelation 21, it says, you will be carried in the heart of God. Wow. Do you ever doubt? Hallelujah. Do you ever doubt your significance? Do you ever doubt your worth? You see, God's great treasure in heaven won't be rocks or minerals or precious jewels. It's you. It's his community. It's his bride. It's his people. Not precious stones, but precious sons and daughters. Not flawless jewels, but flawless hearts. You and me, we are purchased through the blood of Yeshua, through his son. You live in the constant presence of the Lord, who is the lover of your soul. Hallelujah. It's not just the streets of the new Jerusalem, but your character that will be pure gold uh, and, pure, and clear as crystal. You'll be thoroughly joyful, number one. Uh, and you'll be ceaselessly productive, number two. And, and morally flawless, number three. And on the overhead now. And then finally, number four, you'll be completely fulfilled. Revelation 22, verse 1. That the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The idea here is you will be completely fulfilled. In this world, we still live under the curse. We desire, but our desires are frustrated. Uh, we dream, but they go unfulfilled. We want more, but it's never enough. We're constantly pursuing, but never reaching our goal. And we think that, 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 uh, the more, that, that more somehow would be enough, that more somehow would satisfy more money, uh, more intimacy, more pleasure, uh, more security, more beauty, uh, more acclaim and fame, more power. But it's never enough. Maybe you're today discontent in some area of your life. And you're tempted to try to satisfy an appetite in a way that's not honoring to God. Or maybe you're feeling empty and you're tempted to fill that emptiness with various things like, like shopping, like eating, uh, overworking, drinking, drugs, uh, pornography, uh, immorality. Following Messiah means you're going to have to say no to these appetites. And some of you need to do that, to say no. Some of you need to say these appetites that I want to gratify, these desires that I want to fulfill, uh, they violate God's word. They're, just, they're dishonoring to the Lord. They're destructive to, to his community. So I will just say no. I choose to say no uh, to my flesh and to submit to the Lord. Will you do that? 
if you will, there is hope. Because the day is coming when you will be utterly satisfied. His promise, of, the promise of God, Revelation 21, verse 6, to him who's thirsty, thirst is an image of unfulfilled desire, to him who's thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. The day is coming when the only desires you'll have will be for that which is good and righteous. And every such desire will be fulfilled. Your desire for intimacy, uh, for significance, for community, for beauty, for love. In heaven, you'll be utterly and completely fulfilled. The Lord will fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. And the very best part is that the Lord himself will be there with you. You'll dwell forever in his presence. Listen to these promises. Let your heart long and ache for the Lord. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in it in, in the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. You know, the temple was a sacred set-apart space to meet with the Lord. But now there is no need for a temple. Because God fills every inch. There's no night because God's light is always there. The gates of the city are always open. Uh, there's no loneliness. You'll be at home with the Father. The Lord himself will dwell with you. And it's not like, by the way, standing in line or, or traveling for days to get a glimpse of you know, the Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon for a few minutes, then you have to go back home after that. No. It's also not like standing in line and asking someone, hey, did you get to see the Lord yet? No, you'll be with him forever and ever. It's not like some long line at Disney World waiting for hours for a ride, but you'll be with him always. <laughs> and then John says this, Revelation 22, 4, and they shall see his face. We will see his face. You will see the face of God, the face of love. And when you do, you will be transformed by that image. You will be like him. You will be conformed to the image of God. To see someone's face biblically means, means to be in his presence, to be near him, uh, to know him, to rejoice with him. You'll be thoroughly joyful and amazingly productive and morally flawless and completely fulfilled in heaven, dwelling forever with Yeshua. That is the, your destiny if you're in Messiah. That is your promised future. Now, the book of Revelation, it's clear that not all people will end up in the New Jerusalem. There are those who choose to be outside by not being in submission to Yeshua, not having surrendered their life to Messiah, and they will spend eternity without him, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that fate is very real. Hell is very real. You don't want to wake up to that blood-chilling reality in the first five minutes of your eternity. So we all need to repent and to embrace the deliverance that Yeshua freely offers us through his death and resurrection so that you can know without a doubt that you will spend eternity with the Lord. And you'll also do everything you can 
to help others also come to know Yeshua and his redemption and his sure hope of heaven. At the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis tries to capture his character's spiritual quest and what heaven is all about uh, when the earthly side of the story ends, uh, when life in heaven begins. Uh, and this is what he writes as on the overhead. The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all live happily ever after. But for them, it's only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. And now at last, they were beginning, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen. I stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music came to come up. Father, hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this. This chapter from Daniel, Lord, help us to be ready for that first five minutes after we die when we face our future eternity. We want to spend it with you in your presence, Yeshua. We want to be with you forever and ever as subjects of your kingdom, as adopted children in your family, as part of your beloved bride, dressed in pure white garments of righteousness, washed clean in your blood that you shed on our behalf on the tree. We confess, Lord, we stand guilty before you and that your holiness and your justice demand judgment. We have no righteousness, righteousness on our own to escape that judgment. But we stand by faith in your righteousness, Messiah Yeshua. We're clothed by faith in your righteousness. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we come to you, Lord Yeshua, through the cross, through your Yom Kippur atoning death and resurrection on our behalf. And we look forward to that resurrection life with you, Yeshua, for all eternity, where your word says we'll be, we'll be thoroughly joyful uh, with every tear wiped away, where our present sufferings won't even be worth comparing uh, to the glory that's going to be revealed in us, where we will also where we'll be profoundly productive, reigning with you, Yeshua, over the earth, and we'll be morally flawless, conformed to your image, Yeshua, and we'll be completely fulfilled in you, Yeshua. Help prepare us now for that day. Help us to live our lives now with eternity in view. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.